0: We're in our theology series looking at the study and nature of the character of God. We're calling it Theology Proper. This is part two this morning. Last week when we started, we looked at God's greatness. We decided to break down our study of God into two parts. As we look at his attributes, we talked about his greatness, and then we're going to talk about his goodness. That's something I stole from Millard Erickson. I like the way he breaks down the attributes of God. There's a variety of ways to talk about them, depending on uh, how you want to approach it or not. Um, So I like what he does in terms of breaking down the attributes of God into his great attributes and his good attributes. And so last week we talked about his greatness, things like he is spirit, he's personal, he's alive, he's infinite, he's constant. Today we're going to talk about his goodness, and I'm going to break it down into three categories this morning. We're going to look at his moral purity attributes. I think there's three of those. We're going to look at his integrity. That's another grouping of his attributes. I think there's three there as well. And then we're going to look at God's love. And we'll look at four attributes with that. So again, God's moral purity, God's integrity, and God's love. All of those referring, and for us this morning, we'll summarize God's goodness. So let's talk about the first one, God's moral purity. When we speak of God's moral purity, we're referring to his absolute freedom from any type of wickedness or evil. All right? So God's moral purity is a reference to his absolute freedom from anything wicked or evil. And we're going to see that reflected in three different attributes this morning. His holiness, his righteousness, and then his justice. We'll go down, you'll see those in your notes there. Let's talk about his holiness to start with. That's our first attribute reflecting God's moral purity. First and foremost, I would say that holiness is defined by separateness. Some refer to it as uniqueness. When you get into the forms of this word in the Hebrew Old Testament or the Greek New Testament, that those words that are used for holy refer to something being set apart, something being cut off or being separated um, apart from other things. In God's case, it means that there is nothing like Him. He is completely unique in His nature and His character. Now, we are like Him in that we share some of His attributes, but He's different. He's separate. I was watching the news this morning and I saw that there's a cathedral in New York, a Catholic cathedral, and they have this, um, it's basically a, a container, a gold container that holds the bread and the cup for their services. And this one happens to have been worth over $2 million. It was completely covered with gold, and it's sort of set up, and they can see it. And every Catholic church has something like that. They're not $2 million worth. But somebody broke in and stole it, apparently overnight walked away with $2 million. But as the news commentator talked about it, she talked about how sacred it was. Well, what she was saying was it's separate, it's set apart, and that's what makes it holy. And that's exactly the way that this concept is used in the Old Testament. To be holy means to be separated, to be set apart, to be sanctified. And so when we look at God's moral purity today, and we talk about his holiness, that's exactly what we mean. Moses, in Exodus chapter 15, 11, said, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? You're majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. What Moses was saying is there is no other God anywhere close to our God. He's totally unique, totally separate. First Samuel 2, verse 2, Hannah in her praise says, There was no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. You are totally different, totally set apart. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 15 with me. Revelation chapter 15. I see what John wrote based on what he saw as he was taken up into heaven. Revelation chapter 15, or I just read verses 2 through 4. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing in the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What John looked at was the throne and saw the holiness of God, and he recognized this was unique, totally different and set apart from anything else. So that's one thing that helps us understand what God's holiness is. He's separate. That's why as Moses approached the burning bush, what was he told? Take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. That's why we would not be able to approach the Lord without the blood of Christ covering our sins, because he's holy and perfect, and we are not. It's one of the reasons why we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. It shows disrespect for his holiness and who he is. It's why we shouldn't joke around necessarily with God and who he is. It doesn't mean we can't have a sense of humor, but to treat him in a way that disrespects his holiness is inappropriate. I remember seeing there happened to have been a pastor from a number of years ago, he's no well, he was kicked out of his church. You may or may not know who he was, but he started another one. But he used to be known for his t-shirt ministry. He'd wear these somewhat profane t-shirts sometimes, and he would go up to preach. And one of them was a picture of Jesus with his thumb out, you know, his cool dude Jesus. And I thought, how disrespectful, because it destroys the holiness of Christ. He's not some surfer dude. Disrespectful. Another way to understand God's holiness is that it's defined by his purity and his goodness. He's totally and completely free of moral corruption. He cannot participate in any form of temptation or wickedness. Psalm chapter 5 verse 4 says this, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells within you. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil, and you cannot look upon wickedness with favor. Turn to James chapter 1, verse 13. One of my favorite books in the New Testament is James. It's very practical. And his introduction is he talks about temptation and trials. One of the temptations when it comes to trials is to blame God for it. Why did God do this? I was watching the news this week after the shooting, the school shooting, and there were a number of people who had posted articles sort of saying, how could God allow this? How could God do this? And that's the temptation sometimes, to sort of put the blame on God for allowing it or for doing it. But notice what James says in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. That's the word for tried there. In other words, when you're going through a trial, don't say, I am being tried, tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted. The word is tried. There again, you may say tempted, but it's the word tried. God cannot be tried by evil, and he himself does not try anyone. In a sense there, what it means is try someone to fail. We know that he gave Abraham a test, but that was not to fail, that was to prove Abraham. And that's the way God works. And what James is saying here is that God isn't out there experimenting with evil or wickedness or trying to tempt you or to try you to do things, because he cannot do that. That is not in his nature, and he can't do it because he's morally pure. So, that's the first attribute as it comes to God's moral purity. Another one is his righteousness. It's the next attribute. What is righteousness? Righteousness refers to how God conducts himself with others. It's an expression of his holiness. In other words, you have holiness which gets right down to the core of who he is. Righteousness is a way that he expresses that holiness. Erickson put it this way, the holiness of God applied to his relationships with other beings. That's what God's righteousness is. It's where he takes his holiness and he applies it in his behavior, in his actions toward us. It's kind of like when we think about knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is what you know, wisdom is what you do with it. This is kind of very similar Righteousness is what God does with his holiness. simple way to think of it is this. God always does what is right. He always does what is in accordance with his nature and his moral laws. I want you to listen to just two passages here, and I want you to pay attention to the connection between the righteousness of God and his actions. Psalm chapter 145, verse 7. I'll read this, and then we're going to turn to one on our own. But Psalm 145, verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous... In all his ways, and kind in all his deeds. You see, righteousness is the way God acts. It's what he does. It's how he determines what he will do, what his deeds are. Turn to Psalm chapter 71 with me. Psalm chapter 71, starting in verse 15. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness, and of your salvation all day long, for I do not, for I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds. Notice the connection there between deeds and righteousness. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, you have taught me from my youth and still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens, you who have done great things. O God, who is like you? If you have shown me your many or you have shown me many troubles and distress, will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp, and even your truth, O my God, for I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel, my lips will shout for joy when I praise you when I sing praises to you for my soul, which you have redeemed. My tongue also will utter your righteousness all day long, for they are ashamed, for they are humiliated, who seek my heart. Did you notice how many times righteousness there is coupled with God's deeds, and what he did, how he operates? Again, righteousness is God's expression of his holiness. And we saw in this, it's often coupled with other things, like the words that we just read, um, one of the things we'll find, and this actually is going to move us on to our next one, our next trait, but we'll be there in just a second. But oftentimes righteousness is coupled with God's justice. So that's another aspect of God's moral purity. We're going to get to that in just a second. But Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, David said, God is a righteous judge. Psalm 97, verse 2, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. And so there's a coupling of righteousness with God's justice, what makes God a just judge judge is that he is righteous. Isn't that the case here on earth? A judge who sits on the throne is supposed to be righteous. He's supposed to make right decisions. And so God's righteousness is often coupled with justice. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is critical because this is when God was giving the Israelites the law. The things that he would hold them accountable to. It was to be the guide for their lives, how they were to behave. It was their way of recognizing God for who he was by understanding what was right and what was wrong. And so God is giving them the law in Deuteronomy. You look at verses 3 through 4 of chapter 32. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect and all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is He. They are, or they have acted corruptly toward Him. They are not His children because of their defect, but are a perverse and clothed or crooked generation. You go on and you read this and what it describes is that God is just because He is righteous. And so there's a coupling of God's righteousness with His justice. And again, it's because of how He acts. If we expect God to issue justice, He can do that because Of his righteousness, which again is the way that he acts out his holiness. And you can see how the coupling all works there. So let's look at just God's justice now. That's going to be your next attribute. Justice refers to how God holds others accountable to his moral laws. And so you kind of see how this pattern works. We have God's holiness, which is who he is, he holds himself to his moral laws. Then you have righteousness, he acts towards us in his holiness. And then you have his justice, which is where he holds others accountable to his righteousness, to his holiness. So we see this displayed in a number of ways in the Bible. The first two are going to be in Romans chapter 2. We're going to read that in just a second. It's a large passage, but what we find here in Romans 2 is that God, his justice is metered out by how he punishes sin and how he rewards good. So there's really three different ways that God does this. He punishes sin, he rewards good, and then he actually protects the poor. So there's three ways that we see God's justice metered out. Let's look at just those first two, how he punishes sin and rewards good. That's Romans chapter 2. Got a lengthy passage we're going to read here. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul who does evil, for the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned, sin without the law, will also perish without the law. And those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles do not ha- who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having a law, are a law unto themselves, and that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. What do we find in there? We find both sides of this coin of justice, if you will. God punishes the wicked, rewards the just. He punishes sin, but rewards good. That's the way his justice works. And it's because he's holy that he can do that. The third way that we see God's justice is in how he cares for and protects the poor, those who are afflicted, those who are less fortunate. Deuteronomy ten, verse eighteen says this He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and shows his love for the alien by giving him fire, or giving him food and clothing. Psalm sixty eight five. A father of the fatherless and a judge of widows is God in his holy habitation it's because God is holy that he's just in the way that he treats those who are underprivileged those who are hurting orphans and widows Psalm chapter 9 verse 4 David declares of God for you have maintained my just cause you have set on a throne or you have sat on a throne judging righteously And so we see this justice of God in three different forms, if you will. He punishes sin, he rewards good, and he cares for those who can't care for themselves. That's justice, isn't it? That's what we're supposed to do as a society. You know, it's funny, we come up with all these entitlements. I'm going to be a little political here for a second, but we come up with all these entitlements. Government taxes us and then spends all kinds of money and all kinds of pet projects and all kinds of other things. And really, if anything... As a society, we ought to be caring for those who can't care for themselves and expecting those who can take care of themselves to take care of themselves. And we got it backwards. We really do. All these entitlements, all this wasted money, and those who desperately need it and can't care for themselves are left without oftentimes. It's the same thing with the church. You know, one of the things we've committed ourselves to is to take the finances that you guys give and try to limit our expenses so that we have stuff to use for those who need it. We've done that in the past. We've helped, you know, think about Lucy being adopted by the mainlands. You guys helped to finance that, you know? Um, she would certainly fit into that category of widows and orphans, would she not? We think about Steve Mitchell's wife when she died, or when he died. She was left a widow, and what did we do? church made a donation. Sent her $5,000 to help care for her needs. We just recently helped the Dietrichs, Jeremiah and Julie, to help rehab their home so they have a place to stay after spending 15 years, I think it's 15 years on the missions field. Make a sacrifice that impacts them financially. And so what do we do? We invested in that to help them out. That's the way God is. He, he cares for those who don't have all they need to be cared for. And so that's a form of justice, and that's who God is. Now, because he is righteous and he's just, that means that he judges perfectly, he judges fairly, he does it without favoritism or partiality, and he does it based on one's own deeds. That's the best form of judgment. You know, the statement, you get what you paid for, That's the way God judges. Now, in many respects, we don't get what we paid for because he's got that element of mercy to him. But He, we just read in Romans here that he will look at somebody's deeds and he will base his judgment on whether they did good or whether they were wicked. That's what you'd expect of a judge sitting on a throne, right? But unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way, you know? Psalm chapter 9, verse 8 says, And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for people with equity. He is always fair in the way that he judges, which we would expect of a God who's omniscient. We talked about that last week. He knows everything. He knows what's in everybody's heart. You know, if when we were disciplining our kids as they were growing up, it made a difference what we thought was in their heart. If they did something and it was willful disobedience, we treated them a certain way. If they did something unknowingly and it wasn't with malice or deliberately disobeying, we treated it differently. That's the way God is, but God can do that perfectly because he looks into the heart. He's omniscient. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, Moses wrote, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. You can't bribe God. You can't manipulate him. When it comes to his justice, God's perfect in the way that he meters out justice. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, jump down to verse 27. For the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels. And look at this and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Why is this verse important? Because it says that Jesus will judge according to each man's deeds. He's like his father. He's impartial, can't be swayed. He'll look at an individual, and he'll determine how to judge that individual based on that individual not on other things. There's no guilt by association. Each man judged individually based on his own sin or his own relationship with Christ. So we look at all three of these things that really, they talk about God's moral purity. You know, we've got his holiness, we've got his justice, and his righteousness. Why are these things, these three things important to us? Why is God's moral purity important to us? I've got a couple of suggestions for you. One is they're important because God calls us to be holy just like he is holy. He doesn't hold us to some arbitrary standard, but one which aligns with who he is and who he acts. So the fact that he's holy, he can call us to be holy as well because he is. He doesn't hold us to some arbitrary standard. It's like a a parent who holds their child to a standard they don't uphold themselves. We know how difficult that is, right? Especially since we fail sometimes, and our kids see that failure, you see, God holds us to the standard that he holds himself, because that's who he is. You know, we're told to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. We can be holy because he is holy. Unfortunately, the holiness of God becomes ours because of what we find in Christ, but when it comes to our behavior, we still are supposed to act holy, still supposed to act separate from the world, not be like the world. One of the most heartbreaking things that I've seen through a lot of the the last, you know, last couple of years with COVID and the political stuff, the election, um, is when we see Christians that are acting just like everybody else. You know, we're not supposed to be like the world, and yet so much of what we've seen, and I'll be real honest, I've put stuff on Facebook that I've had to go, maybe I shouldn't have posted that, <laughs> because maybe that looks too much like the world. So one of the reasons this is important to us, God's moral purity is because he's morally pure. He calls us to be morally pure too. It gives us something to look at and say, I want to be like him. Another reason this is important is because he always does what is right. He always does what's right, even when dealing with those who do wrong. And that, to me, says a lot about how he treats me. Because I do wrong. And yet, even when I do wrong, he still does right by me. You know, as a parent, I think, you know, when you get real frustrated with your kids and maybe you lash out and you do something you shouldn't do because they didn't deserve it or whatever, you know. It's like, no, as parents, we are expected to always do what's right even when our kids don't do what's right. We still love them in spite of the fact that maybe they don't love us at that moment, right? God is that way. He always does right even when we do wrong, even when we don't deserve it because he is morally pure. Finally, it's important because he assures us that when it comes time for judgment, and we stand before him, he will judge us fairly and impartially. And that's really important to us because how are we going to be judged as Christians? We're going to be judged based on our relationship with Christ. And so because God has said to me, because you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven, and I will not hold you accountable for those sins, because of God's moral purity, I know I'm going to be judged according to my relationship with Christ, not my own sins. I will not be like the unsaved who will be judged according to their own sins because God has told me because of my relationship with Christ, I'll be judged on that standard instead. And so it gives me a tremendous amount of assurance when I stand before Him. He's going to judge me according to the law that He established. How Christians will be judged is in the relationship to their relationship with Jesus Christ. And we can trust Him in that because of His moral integrity. All right, or his moral purity. Let's move on to the next group. This is God's integrity. We just got done looking at God's moral purity. Let's look at his integrity. When we speak of God's integrity, we're referring to how he relates to matters of truth. So this is all pretty much about truth now. We're going to to receive God's integrity, his relationship to truth, in three other attributes, his genuineness, his veracity, and his faithfulness. You might say that This means that God is true, he tells the truth, and he proves himself to be true. Let's look at his genuineness. To be genuine means to be authentic, to be the real deal, if you will. God is certainly the real deal. He's the only true God, that's what we're told in the scriptures. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. We'll look at the first. We're going to read quite a chunk here. We read this last week, if you remember. We're going to read it again, because this helps us understand God's genuineness. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are delusions, because it is wood cut from the forest. He's talking about idols here. The wood of the hands of the craftsmen with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not totter. It means it won't fall over on its own. can't even stand up on its own. It's a fake God. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they cannot do harm, nor can they do any good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought, bought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of a craftsman in the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They all are the work of skilled men. But the Lord is, look at this, the Lord is the true God. He's not an idol. He's the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. And His wrath, or at his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure indignation. Thus you say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and, by his, under, or by, or, and his understanding he has stretched out on the heavens." When he utters his voice, there is tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from the storehouses. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. The portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. The whole point of that passage is that God is the real deal. God is the only true God. So it makes him genuine, because to be genuine means that you're the real deal. He's the only genuine God. There are no others. All the nations surrounding Israel worship these false gods. They crafted them with their own hands out of wood, silver, gold, gold. They stuck them out in the fields, it says, the cucumber fields, much like a scarecrow to scare away the animals. They couldn't do anything. Good, bad, nothing, because they were fake. In contrast to that, Yahweh, it says here, is the true God, he is the living God, and the everlasting king. He's the maker of all, he speaks, he's powerful, he's wise, he's understanding, he is genuine. Elijah said something similar to this when he confronted Israel over the worship of Baal. It's 1 Kings chapter 18, 21, I'll read it to you. Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, the one true God, then follow him. But if Baal, follow him. In other words, Elijah called for them to make a decision. Are you going to worship the genuine God? Are you going to worship these false idols? The people didn't answer him a word is what it says. They didn't say a word. We see the same contrast between the one true God and the false gods in the New Testament as well. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. Remember that first century, the Gentiles typically worshipped idols as well. There's a lot of idol worship in that first century. Jews were sometimes even caught up in it. So it's not surprising that we find in 1 John 5, verses 20-21, through these words as he closes out his letter. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we know him who is, what? True. And we are in him who is, what? True. And in his son, Jesus Christ, this is what? The true God and eternal life. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says, For the people everywhere report how you welcomed us and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what Paul said to the Thessalonians. They had been idol worshippers. And Paul basically says, Your eyes have been opened. You turned from those fake idols, those fake gods, to the genuine God, to the true God. And so God's genuineness means that he is the true God, and that's the first attribute of God's integrity. Why? Because it relates to truth. He is the true God. When we look at him, we see truth. The second attribute that gets to God's integrity, his relationship with truth, is his veracity. It's not a word we use often. Veracity refers to truthfulness. And when we talk about it in relation to God, it means that he always speaks the truth. Whatever comes out of God's mouth is true. He cannot lie. That's what we're told in the scriptures. When Paul was writing to Titus, he referred to God as the one who cannot lie in Titus 1-2. God can't lie, Paul says. The author of Hebrews says something very similar. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18, the author of Hebrews says, it is impossible for God to lie. Not only does he not lie, he can't lie if he wanted to. I always love that question. Is there anything God can't do? And obviously it's a trick question because God can do anything, right? No, he cannot lie. God cannot do everything. Can't lie you have a problem with that, see your Bible. He can't lie because of his integrity. He can't speak untruths. We talked about that with the Word of God when we did our section on bibliology, right? We talk about this being not only inerrant, but infallible. And what is infallible? It means that it cannot mislead. So not only does it not contain errors, it cannot mislead us into errors. Why? Because God breathed this. It's part of his integrity. It's part of his veracity. His desire to be truthful in all that he says and all that he does. This veracity of God is a common theme in the Bible. Whether God speaks to individuals, whether he speaks through prophets, whether he's done it in his written word here, even through Jesus. Let's talk about some of those examples here. God, when he speaks directly to people, is truthful. David actually wrote, when, uh, when God had promised to build David a house, David, remember David wanted to build him a temple and the Lord said, No, I'll build you a house though. Your son can build me the house. And David responds by saying, now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are truth. Meaning that he understood that what the Lord would say would come to pass. You've promised this good thing to your servant. When the Lord warned Saul that he would have to remove his kingdom from him, 1 Samuel chapter 15. This is what we read. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. He's talking about giving it to David. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. In other words, what was Samuel telling Saul? Saul, the Lord's going to rip the kingdom out of your hands, and what he says is true. And what do we know happened? The Lord ripped the kingdom out of his hands and gave it to David, exactly as Samuel told Saul. And So as God is directly speaking to individuals, what he says is true. What about when he uses prophets in a similar fashion to what Saul did here? Remember when the Lord set Balaam to confront Balak? Numbers chapter 23. God is not a man that he should lie. This is verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He has said, and he will do it. Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Again, we find that God only speaks truth. And when he says it, he'll do it. When Elijah raised a woman's son from the dead in 1 Kings chapter 17, She said, now I know that you are a man of God, this is the prophet Elijah, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is what? Truth. It's true. So we see that when God speaks to individuals directly, we see when I'm speaking through prophets, that what he says is true. How about Psalm chapter 119? Turn there with me. What about the scriptures? And we talked about that briefly here, but Psalm chapter 119, we're just going to bounce around a couple of verses here. Psalm chapter 119. It's a big psalm. We're jumping down to verse 142. David writes, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Jump down to verse 151. You are near, O Lord, and your commandments are truth. Jump down to verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word, and one who finds great spoil, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. For those who love your law have great peace, and nothing causes them to stumble. Why? Because his law is truth. And so, even the scriptures, as we talked about in our second week, reveal God's voracious or um ferocity because he's truthful. The last thing is Jesus himself, because God speaks or spoke through Christ. John chapter 18, verse 37, therefore Pilate said to him, So, you're a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I'm a king, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world what? To testify of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So what do we find in this? You know, as we look at this, God is truthful. Whether it's directly speaking, whether it's through prophets, whether it's through his scriptures, or whether it's through Jesus Christ himself. God is truth. refers to his veracity. The last attribute we have, we're going to talk about this morning, as it comes to God's veracity, is his faithfulness. Because faithfulness really has everything to do with truth. Does it not? If you say you're going to do something, you do it, you're trustworthy, you're reliable, you're faithful. So, faithfulness refers to God keeping his promises, doing exactly what he says he's going to do. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So right out of the gate, in Deuteronomy, as he's given him the law, he says, God's faithful, and he keeps his covenant to a thousand generations. Why? He's faithful. Numbers chapter 29, verse 13, or I'm sorry, 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a human being that he should change his mind. He has said, and he will do it, right? As he has spoken, will he not make it happen? It's again about God's faithfulness. What he says he's going to do, God does. Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, jump down to verse 23. It's the way he closes out his letter here. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. This is important to the Thessalonians because they had thought that the rapture had happened already. They thought they were all left behind. Paul is trying to explain to them, no, you haven't been left behind yet. It hasn't happened yet. And then he ends his letter by basically saying, the Lord is going to be faithful. He's going to do the things that I just talked about, which is partially a discussion on the rapture. He will do it because he is faithful. So why is God's genuineness, his veracity, his faithfulness, all of those things referring to his integrity, why are they important to us? I'll give you a couple more possibilities. Because he is genuine, because he's true, we know that we worship the one true God. Our faith isn't based on some false religion. It's not based on some man-made stuff. We don't worship idols. We don't worship things based on our own imagination or things that we've created. We are worshiping the one true God. We can be confident of that because God is the one true God. Because of his veracity, his desire to always tell the truth, the fact that he cannot lie means that we can trust what he says. His word's not only true, it's the very embodiment of truth. We can reply on it in all areas of life, not only as it relates to this life, but eternal life. That's where our confidence comes from. When I get up here on Sunday mornings and I share what this word says with you, the reason I'm so confident is because it's truth. I don't have the kind of confidence in anything else that I have in this. You know, it's interesting. I... I do some training and stuff for work, and lately I've been doing a lot of training, and I really enjoy that. It's all web-based, and people join, and um, sometimes I'm doing three and four of those a week now. I've been making a bunch of videos online for some software products we have, and I enjoy that kind of stuff, Um, but I would much rather do this, and the primary reason is because the confidence I have with this. When I'm in those meetings, sometimes they ask questions (laughs) that I don't have the answer to, and I get shaken a little bit, Because I'm supposed to be the expert. They're coming to me and they have me doing these because I'm the expert. And as much as I would love to say that I'm an expert in that product, I'm really not, and I know I'm not. And so I know and I anticipate sometimes that there's going to be things that I can't answer. Or sometimes maybe something that I get wrong. And that can still happen with preaching and teaching, but boy, I tell you, the confidence I have in this is like nothing else that I have. It's because it's true, and it's proven it over and over and over and over in my life. And in history, I told you you know a couple of weeks ago that I love archaeology. Man, I am just, every week something comes out, some new discovery that just tells me about the veracity of this book. And so we can trust it. We can absolutely trust it. The last reason God's veracity is important to us here, or because he's faithful and we can have hope in all of the promises that he's made to us. God is faithful. He'll get us there. Morning, you got nothing to worry about, folks. I've been spending an awful lot of time this last week and a half here trying to put together the last um, section that I'll be doing on this, which is something I should have let Dustin do. End times, eschatology. Makes my head hurt. Um, But boy, when we think about the stuff that God's got planned, when we look at the stuff that's expected... If we cannot rest on God's faithfulness, we are a people that is in for a world of hurt. But because he's faithful, the very things we see laid out in the prophecies in the Old and the New Testament that we know are going to take place, God has promised one thing through all of that. We will not face his wrath. We'll be taken on into eternity with him. Paradise with Christ. Because he's faithful, Because he's done everything he said he would do up until this point, we can trust him. We can have confidence. We can have hope. Let's move on to the last category. And there's going to be four attributes we're going to look at here. And that's God's love. And that'll be our last category for this morning, God's love. First one we're going to talk about, let me define it first off. God's love, it refers to, uh, probably the best way to define this is God giving and sharing of himself is probably the best way to describe God's love. It's a giving of himself. First attribute I want to look at is God's benevolence. Benevolence refers to God's concern for our welfare. Rather than simply seeking his own welfare, God seeks what's good for us. Um, He's unselfish. His interests in us are unselfish. Um, We see this reflected in a number of ways as he cares for us and he cares for his creation. Um, Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 7-8 through The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other people for you were the fewest of all nations but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt Think about that for a moment God is telling the Israelites I didn't choose you because you were the biggest and the baddest could have chosen Israel. I mean, I could have chosen Egypt for that. But you were small. I simply made a promise to Abraham. And so that speaks of God's benevolence. He reached down to this, I'll say, poor, pathetic group of people out of his own goodness for their benefit. You know, it kind of makes me think about when you're choosing, you know, in high school or even grade school, when you would choose teams. You know, I don't even know if they do that today anymore because it's probably considered wrong, you know. But we would have this guy and this girl, and they would get to pick one at a time, you know. And you always pick the biggest, best, and then the poor souls that were left at the end, and then you kind of see them fighting over who has to take you, you know. I mean, oh, that's not God. God looks at the shortest. God looks at the weakest. I got you, you know. That's that's His benevolence. Um, Probably the greatest example we have of God's benevolence is what he did for us in Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How did that start? Because God loved the world. It wasn't for his benefit. It was for the world's benefit. That's his benevolence. Take a look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. 6 through 10, actually. For while we were still, look at this, helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we not only have the helpless, but the ungodly, and here we have Christ dying for us, right? For he will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his ungodly, own love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. And so we have God looking down on his enemies, on sinners, on pagans, but chooses to send his son. That's benevolence. You can mark this one down, I'll have you read it on your own, but First John, uh, John chapter 4, verses 8-11 through 11, speaks of God's benevolence, His willingness, His concern to reach down and care for us in our time of need, to look at our welfare and act on that behalf. That's the definition of benevolence. God's grace is another attribute that gets to His love. It's defined as unmerited favor, getting something we don't deserve. It refers to God dealing with us not on the basis of our own merits or worthiness, but... Rather, according to what we need, we needed salvation, and God saw that, and so what does He do? He exercises grace. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. That's the Lord's grace right there. It's His love It's the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. It's not something we deserved. He freely bestowed it upon us. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of what? Of His grace, which He lavished on us. Not a little bit of grace, but a lot of grace. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intention, which He purposed in Him. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come, He might show show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of your own works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What's he saying here? You've been saved by what? Grace. Grace. That's God's love. He did it out of the intentions of his own will for us. It's motivated by love. You might have noticed in these verses that another attribute was mentioned, mercy. And it's because mercy and grace often go hand in hand, and that's actually the next attribute we're going to look at here. Mercy. It refers to God's tender heartedness or his loving compassion for his people. Grace is him acting. Mercy is what drives him to act. It has an emotional attachment to it in some respects, a compassionate element to it. You might say that this is, again, the emotional side of love. It's, what moves God to act or extend his grace and his forgiveness to us when we certainly don't deserve it. Back to Titus 3, 5, I'll just mention this. It says, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done, but in, or in righteousness, but what? According to his mercy. So his grace was extended to us because of his mercy. Ephesians 2, we looked at that a moment ago. But God, it starts off in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love. That's why it's an attribute of love. Great love which he loved us. And so, God's love is expressed because of his mercy as well. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to what? His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was God's tenderheartedness. As he looked down upon us and saw our need for salvation, He was moved because of the mercy that he has to extend to us salvation, to extend to us his grace. The last attribute we're going to look at here, the last one for today, as we look at God's love, is God's patience. Patience refers to his long-suffering, his willingness to postpone judgment and to continue to offer salvation and grace over long periods of time. That's another expression of love, is how patient you can be. What are we told? Love is patient. Love is kind. And that's what we see in God. It's often described in the Old Testament by phrases like slow to anger. I'm just going to read down through these for the sake of time again. When the Lord passed in front of Moses, you remember where he, Moses begged to see him and the Lord put him in the cleft of a rock, covered up his eyes with his hand and he says this as he passes by, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. David wrote, But you, O Lord, are a God of mercy and graciousness. You are slow to anger, and you are abundant in loving kindness and truth. That's Psalm 86. God called on Israel through the prophet Joel by saying this, Now return to the Lord your God. This is after they had sinned. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. He's patient. He's abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Remember Jonah? (laughs) Jonah's reason for not wanting to go to the people that God had sent him to was because God was patient. I don't want to go to them, Lord. This is what he says. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still with you in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. You are slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And one who relents concerning calamity. That's why he didn't want to go. Because he knew that God was patient with the people. And he knew that because God was patient, if they repented, God would relent. And he didn't want that. I'm going to have you... Well, actually, let's do this. Turn to, turn to Nehemiah. Is that the right... I'm trying to look up if that's the right passage or not. Hold on a moment. I believe it is. Yeah, Nehemiah chapter 9. It's a long passage. I'm going to summarize parts of it here, but this is after they had returned from exile. Ezra's reading the law in front of them, you know. But this almost brings tears to my eyes as I read this, because the priests and all that are are standing before the people here, and they realize that they had just been brought back out of captivity. And they're kind of rehearsing some of this. And what they basically do from about verse 5 on to verse 15 is they... Sort of spell out all that God had done for them. And then they say this in verse 16 through 19. But they, our forefathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. And then get this. But you are a God of forgiveness. You're gracious you're compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. So they just admitted here that you did all these great things for our forefathers and they still turned their back on you and rejected you, but your response? You didn't forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which... They were to go. So then they go on from there, verses 20 down through verse 25, and they talk about how God then returned to treat them with goodness. And again, verse 26, But they became disobedient again and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who, you, who um, had, had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors and oppressed who oppressed them but when they cried to you in their time of distress you heard them from heaven and according to your great compassion you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors that's number 2 you treated them well they rebelled you still were patient with them treated them well again and they rebelled again first uh, 28. but as soon as they had rest they did evil again before you therefore you abandoned them to, the, to hand them over to their enemies so that they ruled over them when they cried to you again you heard from heaven and many times you rescued them according to your compassion you go on through the rest of this same thing over and over it's like the book of Judges talk about God's patience with Israel like I said this almost brings tears to my eyes because it reminds me of myself sometimes how patient does the Lord have to be with me Over and over and over, he was patient. We see the same type of patience in the New Testament. I'll just read these. Peter declared that the patience of God kept waiting in the days leading up to the flood. We know that the Lord waited 120 years after telling Noah he was going to flood the earth. He gave the people of earth 120 years. We like to say it took Noah that long to build the ark. God gave him 120 years not to build the ark, but because he was long-suffering giving people time to repent because we're told that Moses or Noah was a preacher of righteousness at that time. God gave him 120 years because he was patient. At Mars Hill, Paul said that God had overlooked the times of ignorance of the pagans in the past. Paul even spoke of Jesus' patience in 1 Timothy chapter 15. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in... In me, at foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate, what? His perfect patience as an example of those who believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul says, My life is an example of the patience of Christ. Even today, God is patiently enduring the world's sin. Peter says, The Lord is not slow about its promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all to come to repentance. God is still being patient today. He's waiting. In fact, he's waited 2,000 years. Why? doesn't want anyone to perish because when it happens, it happens. When Christ returns, God's wrath comes. There's no chance after that. So God delays his coming because he's patient. So why is God's love, his benevolence, grace, mercy, and patience important to us? Let me give you just a couple and we'll wrap up with this. Because he's benevolent, we know that God is for us and always seeks what's in our best interest. He seeks what's good for us. We know that from Romans chapter 8 where it basically says God is for us. Who's against us? Because he's gracious and he's merciful, we know that even in our weaknesses, those times when we sin, we can still draw near to him. Why? Because he's patient. He understands. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted just as we were without sin. Yet let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. Why? Because God is patient with us. Finally, because he's patient with us, we can be strengthened to endure hostility and persecution. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. So understanding God's patience with us helps us to stand strong when we're mistreated, when we face persecution and opposition, because we're to be like him. So all of these things, God's moral purity, his integrity, and his love all reveal God's goodness to us. Amen?